You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm your close pal, Shane. (laughs) And so today we are talking about a famous Stanley Kubrick movie. (laughs) Ah, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah, (laughs) that's the one. (laughs) actually we are not talking about either of those things we are talking about the idea of artificial intelligence and what does that mean yeah and why it's not so scary i have always been interested in robotics and you know i saw terminator when i was a kid and just like just thinking of all those things that are just so concerning about why people are afraid of machines and the oncoming wave of machinery that is our future right and there's just i think a lot of people They hear the term artificial intelligence, and I think that that conjures up a lot of ideas about either something to be afraid of or what it's capable of doing. And of course, Skynet and things like that. Of course. And so it's, it's worth really digging into what do we mean when we say artificial intelligence? What is this going to potentially look like in the future? And definitely what has science fiction had to say about this? One of the things I wanted to really do with this is kind of dispel the idea of what people think artificial intelligence is and kind of provide like a quick introduction. Our plan is to do this in a couple parts. We have somebody that we want to talk to about this that's a little bit more of an expert in that area. So hopefully that'll happen sooner rather than later. But for now, we wanted to kind of provide like a little bit of a primer on where intelligence came from and some really important items that I think are necessary for understanding the limitations of artificial intelligence. Yeah, and there is kind of, there's a ton to unpack with this topic, so we'll do our best to describe it succinctly, and just know that there's going to be some things that we probably leave out about some of the more nuanced aspects of this conversation, but we are nevertheless going to do our best to give a comprehensive overview of artificial intelligence, and especially how we relate that to our understanding of human psychology. Yeah. So one of the things that we wanted to start with was the kind of where some of the general rules and laws of robotics and AI come from. And that starts with a man named Isaac Asimov. He was a writer, a professor of biochemistry, which is interesting that he decided to get into robotics. And he's pretty much considered the father of modern robotics in that he established some rules that are really kind of, I would say, They are like a cornerstone of all artificial intelligence and robotics areas. Yes. And we'll go over those rules because I think they're very interesting. And at first blush, they seem really complete. But just as a quick side note, did you see that there is some company that is making a TV show that's about the Foundation Trilogy? I did not see that. That's awesome. It looks so good. And it looks like it has some really good cast. Lee Pace, I think, is going to be one of the starring actors and just lots of really cool visual things in it. I'm really excited for it. That's going to be so good. Yeah. So what's really great about Isaac Asimov is that while he was kind of a professor and he worked in this area of biochemistry, he was really more of a fiction writer. So a lot of his books, like the Foundation series, like Abraham just mentioned, and some of his other science fiction was really cool. But just to kind of illustrate the, how smart this guy was and really kind of the dichotomy that is Isaac Asimov. He completed his thesis called The Kinetics of Reaction Inactivation of Tyrosinase During Its Catalysis? Catalysis? Catalysis. <laughs> Whatever that word is. That's a hard word, yeah. That is a hard word. Of the aerobic oxidation of catechol in 1948. So the guy was a super brilliant person. I can't read this and understand even half of it, but it's cool that This is kind of where he comes from and decides, like, I'm going to write some science fiction stuff. Yeah, and mostly he wrote hard science fiction, which is to say science fiction that is widely accepted for its accuracy and logic related to actual real-life science. And I actually always love that when you have a writer who they take essentially what we really understand about science and then just try and push it just enough to really build that fiction, that, like, extrapolation to the next sort of step outside of that, like... One of my favorite movies ever, and correspondingly, the book is The Martian. Yes. And I think part of what I love about it so much is that like, it is really close to reality, but it pushes you out into that fiction just at a place where it's perfectly plausible and relatable, and it's still a little bit fantastical, if that makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say, because like, Event Horizon is definitely not a hard science fiction movie. Yeah, that took nothing of reality and pushed it way beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Anyway, so when we talk about this idea of hard science fiction, I, I always thought it was really interesting too. Like the idea of like there are scientific, like there's a basis for what they're talking about. Now, what's really cool about him though is again, he's considered the father of modern robotics. And that leads into just the entire field of artificial intelligence. It leads into the entire field of robotics and just kind of really, he sets the occasion for understanding how artificial intelligence starts to work. So the first question we have to ask is, what is artificial intelligence? Well, there are, it kind of depends on who you ask, but essentially it is a branch of computer science specifically designed to simulate behavior, human behavior amongst the machines. And also another term you'll hear a lot is machine learning. Yes, you'll hear that quite a bit. And over the last few years, obviously this has just expanded to such a degree that it's kind of bizarre to see how much this field has grown. But it's really important to kind of note that since our technology is developing and since we are continuing to evolve with this like kind of this fast paced technology field, you're going to see artificial intelligence become more and more critical as part of that system. Another way that this is also commonly described is the ability for a computer to simulate human intelligence or essentially for a computer to pretend to be human. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about that in the Turing test. Yes, 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 yes. So to kind of kick this off and we start talking about artificial intelligence, we have to talk about the laws of robotics because they do apply to any sort of machine, machine learning, robots in general, and any sort of robotics. So Asimov created what are called the three laws of robotics, and we're going to look at each one individually. And this will kind of serve as a basis for the expansions of these laws in the future. So but this is kind of where the idea of robotics started. So the first one is a robot may not injure a human being or through an action, allow a human being to come to harm, which is the exact opposite of the plot for Terminator in most killer robot movies. <laughs> and I think this is something that's important for people to know. This is a law of robotics. This is how that robotics are set up. This is how programming occurs. And so the first one is a robot cannot injure a human. The second one is is that a robot must obey the orders given to it by a human, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. So basically, a human can order a robot to do something, but it cannot order a robot to injure somebody else. And then the third law that we have to look at is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So a robot cannot injure a human. It has to obey orders from a human except for when it injures a human. And then the third thing is it must preserve itself unless preserving itself means that it's going to injure a human or be ordered to injure a human. And of course, this is taken to its logical conclusion in the movie iRobot, in which the robots determined that in order to prevent humans from being injured or through an action being injured, that they sort of have to impose a strict Orwellian, I guess, dictatorship from the machines themselves and control everything the humans do so that the humans can't hurt themselves or one another. And so although these laws, they do at first blush seem like they're the best way to protect humans, there's actually a lot of wiggle room in there for, for harm to happen. But it's kind of an interesting starting place to start to work out what needs to happen if we're going to build these machines that are going to sort of think like humans. Right. And well, and on top of that, you know, keeping in mind that when you talk about Asimov, he was writing in the 40s and 50s, like the 30s, 40s and 50s, when he was kind of creating all this stuff and really starting to develop these laws. And so when you start considering that, when he was writing in such a space that there wasn't really a lot of room for robotics on this level... This made the most sense. This was as far as the human imagination was going at that time, <laughs> you know, right. because there was they simply we did not have the technology to look further than what kind of makes sense in those laws. Right. So in 2011, the laws were updated to more modern terminology and additional laws were included to meet the challenges in robotics that Isimov really could not have predicted at the time that he was writing and developing the concept for those laws. So as we sort of learned more about what was implied by building AI, we sort of had to adjust and amend our ideas of those laws. Yeah. And so you'll see these revisions. They were made by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, which sounds so 
so scientific. It's like got, it's got the badge of amazing scientific names. It really does. It's I feel like there's so much math that happens in those walls, you know? Definitely. So between the Epsilon and the Arts and Humanities Research Council, so AHRC of Great Britain, they made some revisions that include five rules now and seven what are called messages that are designed to be values or principles of general robotics. So they've created essentially these new five laws. It's getting too complicated. I don't know. I don't know if we can hang with this. We went from three to 12. It's too much. (laughs) I can really hold on to three things after that. (laughs) It's a mess. Anyway, the new five laws are as follows. So robots should not be designed solely or primarily to kill or harm humans. And humans, not robots, are responsible agents. So robots are tools designed to achieve human goals. Robots should be designed in ways that assure their safety and security. And so those align really well with the first three original laws that that Isimov had created. Now, the new two are robots are artifacts. They should not be designed to exploit vulnerable users by evoking an emotional response or dependency. It should always be possible to tell a robot from a human. We're looking at you, Blade Runner. Right. Replicants. (laughs) It should always be possible to find out who is legally responsible for a robot as well. So. In case there is a robot that does something that ultimately results in harm, because I think there are not that difficult of a way of programming a robot to sort of accidentally create harm, then it would need to be easily determined who did that. So I was just thinking about an example of like, let's say a person commands a robot to fell a tree, let's say, and there's no inherent harm in that. So it's like, how many steps out do we need to program the robots to determine what action causes harm or through an action causes a human to come to harm? Because let's say they fell a tree and that tree happens to fall right in the middle of a freeway during like, you know, a high traffic time. Well, the felling of the tree doesn't hurt a human intrinsically, but where it falls certainly will. And so in that case, you got to be able to look at Again, how many steps removed do we get before we say that someone is responsible and that that someone is the person who is legally responsible for that robot? Right. And it's like gun ownership, too. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, it's not. It's not. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I like I like that whenever I say something even kind of problematic, you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> it's button pushed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, as we start talking about that, the idea of legal responsibility, it's like owning an automobile. Like you have to know where that car is going, like, you know, who owns it, who's responsible for it in case something does happen. And I think that's an important point here. That's actually, that's a great analogy and very related too, because as we are getting into the self-driving car world, yeah. that is a question that's going to be raised is like, if a car is coming to pick you up and it hits somebody along the way. Who's responsible for that? Is it the company that designed the car or the software for the car? Is it the owner of the car? Is there no one who's responsible? How do you make that decision? So I like that comparison a lot. I think that's a really good one. Yeah, I think that's much better than the gun example. Just for the sake of like poor ratings and reviews and emails. (laughs) I think we could tie it all back around, but let's just avoid the controversy at this point is my thought. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) So... We talked about those five rules, but we also have the seven messages that I mentioned, and there are these guiding principles. And the first one is we believe that robots have the potential to provide immense positive impact to society, and we want to encourage responsible robot research. Another one is that bad practice hurts all, so avoid it, basically. Yeah, that's. I think that's good for any field, really. Yeah, actually, that, that should be one of the bylines of any field. <laughs> yeah. Addressing obvious public concerns will help us all make progress. So working on things that are important. It's important to demonstrate that we as roboticists, not now we are not roboticists, but those who are saying this, who are out there as roboticists, <laughs> are committed to the best possible standards of practice. And again, another byline for any field. I think that's good. To understand the context and consequences of our research, we should work with experts from other disciplines, including social sciences, law, philosophy, and the arts. And behavior analysis. We're just going to throw that in there. Agreed. Agreed. (laughs) We should consider the ethics of transparency. Are there limits to what should be openly available? Maybe. I like that. And then when we see erroneous accounts in the press, we commit to take the time to contact the reporting journalists. Awesome. All right. So there is a lot more to unpack inside of this. And I think that honestly, as we as a species delve more into this AI thing, we're going to have to, again, amend and add new things to this as we we think about this and learn more about the implications of building machines that are capable 
of learning. And I think we haven't said a lot about this yet, and I think we'll say more about it as we go on. But the point of this with AI is not just that it mimics human like thinking in a way, but it does so as quickly and as easily as humans. And so therefore, it's going to have similar foibles as humans, potentially. At least it's going to be picking things up as you go. So it's like, it sounds all good to think of like, well, my washing machine knows when I need to start laundry and how I like my whites and colors separated and how much detergent to use and all of, and it's going to learn and get better and better. But that assumes that our washing machine wants to work for us. And who's (laughs) to say if we give it enough intelligence, it's like, Hey, do I get like a vacation from doing your laundry sometimes? Or is this my only, you know, reason to be? Yeah. It's like Forky from Toy Story 4. He has an existential crisis because he's trash. <laughs> exactly. Right. We just we don't want to bestow sentience on everything. Yeah, yeah. It's just not it's not helpful. It's not helpful. So <laughs> now to kind of expand upon this, so that last set, the five rules and the seven messages came from 2011, which was seems like it was so long ago. But in 2016, the CEO of Microsoft, Satan Adela, provided their own account or own interpretation of the law. So now there's a possibility of six laws or six rules. And so what they came up with was this. AI must be designed to assist humanity, meaning human autonomy needs to be respected in line with the, you know, kind of some of these laws and rules. Right. And then this is the next one's actually kind of one of the messages, which is AI must be transparent, meaning that humans should know and be able to understand how they work. No runaway algorithms, Google. <laughs> yeah, which is the scariest thing. I read an article there like, we don't know how our system works sometimes. Yeah, that would be AI, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So AI must maximize efficiencies without destroying the dignity of people. AI must be designed for intelligent privacy, meaning that it earns trust through guarding their information, which is actually another important one is that an AI exposing someone's personal information would definitely result in some kind of harm to that person that isn't physical harm that definitely wouldn't be captured by the way that that law was originally written or even rewritten later. Right. So as you see, like just in a few short years, these rules and these laws are getting expanded. So AI must have algorithmic accountability so that humans can undo intended harm. And finally, AI must guard against bias so that they may not discriminate against people. and. Boy, how timely this is, given what's going on with facial recognition (laughs) software in which we have this that's sort of like AI. I mean, I I don't know that it's necessarily called AI, although I think that what Clearview is doing probably falls into that category and how biased it is about people who have darker skin color. And it's really super privileged, if you will. I mean, it's it's just way more oriented to people with light skin and sort of European features than it is others. And here we are. This was all the way back in 2016, which is really probably the start of this wacky timeline. (laughs) At least an important blip on it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yes. 2016. A year for the history books. Oi. Oi. Oh. (laughs) So, you know, as we go forward and we kind of go through this, Mark W. Tilden also established a set of laws for robotics. So everybody wants to get in on this, right? Everybody's like, no, I have laws. And so this guy is a robotics physicist, and he created three guiding principles or laws that model general rules for what he calls wildlife. Not quite sure what he understood by that or what that means or, you know, stands, you know, whatever that is. But he talks about this being general rules for wildlife. And the first one is a robot must protect its existence at all costs. Hold on now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that seems like it could be a major concern yes <laughs> especially if it's protecting its existence means getting rid of those pesky humans that would otherwise threaten or exploit its existence yes the next one is a robot must obtain and maintain access to its own power source and while i think there's certainly some nefarious things that would be intrinsic to that i immediately think of wally yes so yeah wally's so sweet he's so wonderful as I'm reading these more and more, I'm starting to think that this guy has an eye patch and definitely like he's somebody who sits behind a, a really dark desk and he does some nefarious things because the third one is a robot must continually search for better power sources, which is the entire plot of the Matrix. He definitely has a, a mantra of welcoming our robot overlords. I feel like he is he is ushering them in. I think that he's he this guy is definitely building a robot army. So somebody needs to find this guy and, and, and maybe encourage him into another field. <laughs> like gardening i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah he would be a great gardener it sounds like so let's talk really quick about the turing test the turing test was proposed by alan turing 
Alan Turing was a mathematician who pioneered machine learning in the 1940s and 50s, and he he wrote several papers where he was talking about sort of a game that involves no use of AI, but instead you have three human participants that are placed in separate rooms, and each room has a screen and a keyboard that connects it, and there's one containing a male, one a female, and the other one being a male or female judge. And the female tries to convince the judge that she's the male, and the judge tries to disseminate which is which, and again, they're just typing messages into this computer. And so the judge reads those messages and then tries to determine whether the participant is male or female. And then Turing changed this concept to include artificial intelligence, where you had a human and a human questioner, and the person who is the judge, it's their job to try and figure out whether who they're interviewing is human or AI. And since the formation of that test, many AI have actually been able to beat this test. They've had to change it a little bit. And the first one was called Eliza, which was created by Joseph Weizenbaum. And then there was also the movie, if you ever saw Ex Machina, which is essentially about this, where there was a, not to spoil it too much, I think this is the basic setup of the plot of the movie. So if you've seen a trailer or heard anything about it, Essentially, one of the main characters builds a robot played by Alicia Vikander, and he builds the robot sort of connected to the internet so that it can learn everything. And then she actually looks like a robot, but nevertheless, and his whole gambit in this is that she could pass the, the Turing test even while you know that she's a robot, even while you're sitting there talking to her because she's that good. Huh. I need to see that. That sounds like a great movie. It actually is really fantastic. It's super well done. So there are some other considerations around the Turing test that people have pointed out some of the limitations, which is that the questions were limited. And so essentially that made it a little easier for AI to pretend to be human. Also for a while, they were only yes, no questions and pertain to pretty narrow fields of knowledge. And so that made it a little easier. So then when questions were open-ended, it was less likely that the computer would be able to fool a questioner. Also, some programs could pass the Turing test by manipulating symbols that it didn't fully understand. There are also a few variations to the Turing test that have been proposed over time, but for the most part, many researchers really have found that whether or not one can pass the Turing test is kind of irrelevant. Really, it's the whole point is that these researchers and programmers are developing a machine that can make human-machine interaction more intuitive and efficient, for example, by having a conversational interface. Not that it has to necessarily sound like it's human, but that it's usable in a way that is easy. So I'm thinking sort of Jarvis from the Marvel movies, Iron Man's AI that he sort of talks to and then later becomes Friday. I know too much about Marvel movies. Yeah, I probably know too much about Marvel too. And it's one of those things where I personally, while Jarvis and Friday are really great exemplars, I feel like Ultron might be the exemplar for the other side of that. Maybe maybe we need to be more more cautious about how we approach this thing. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so so it's probably a good time to talk about myths about AI so that we don't have to go to bed at night worrying about some robot overlord that is going to take over the planet and make us subservient or make us these power batteries in this pink goo that just looks like the slime from Ghostbusters 2. <laughs> Indeed. And the first <laughs> one is this idea that any algorithm can solve data problems. Yes. So that is false. So when you are talking about AI, you know, a lot of it is just some kind of algorithm, some kind of programming, some kind of process. And a lot of people feel like that any algorithm, no matter what it is, any procedure, any process can actually solve issues of data problems. And what they find is that the algorithms are designed to analyze and organize data based on complex calculations that are specific to its own programming. So while an algorithm might be complex, while a program might be complex, it's still only limited by what it's designed to do. And so if there are issues with data going into the algorithm or going into the process, it will likely not work. Another one is that cognitive AI programs are designed to recreate the processes of the human brain. False. So we are not trying to mimic, or I should say roboticists and machine learning folks, are not trying to recreate the process of the brain. They're trying to solve problems they were designed to solve. So that these cognitive AI programs, these programs that kind of mimic thinking to some degree, are really, again, trying to 
apply that program or apply that process to a specific problem. What people think AI is and what people think it's trying to do is like trying to use a screwdriver for a job that's solved by a hammer, right? It's again, going back to the idea, that law, that rule that AI and robotics are designed to be tools to solve specific problems. Or maybe more like trying to use a calculator for a job that's better suited for a hammer. (laughs) That's fair. But another thing too is just like, that's just it's a poor understanding of how the human brain works because that's even something that we don't fully understand or know. It's just, it is a complex system in which everything is interconnected. And it also kind of assumes that the best way of going about learning or, or doings or thinking about something is the way that humans do it. And I think that's certainly arguable that it is. Yeah, I like it. So Another myth that we want to talk about is that AI uses what are called neural nets, which means that computer programs are are designed. They have all these kind of intricate links. But AI, and this is the myth, the AI that uses neural nets means that those computers or programs can learn like humans learn. And again, incorrect. As we mentioned before, human brains just don't work like computers and computers just don't work like human brains. Neural nets are the AI connections that mimic biological connections and are used to improve AI learning. And while they're powerful, they can't actually really imitate human learning in the way that it occurs in the human brain. They're just different processes. They're structured differently. They work different. They use different processes. Our brains don't communicate zeros and ones. That's just not how we work. We're actually a complex set of interactions between our sensing organs, our ability to detect the world around us, and how we assimilate and use that information and then act on that environment and get feedback from it. And the neural nets are a lot more about just processing information and a lot of it quickly in a particular way that's sort of latticed and structured. And again, there is the sort of inherent assumption that we want it to be structured like a human brain because it's the best way to process information. And while we do have amazing brains for the animals that we are, that are very complex and capable of a lot, there might still be a better way of processing information. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to try and construct a human brain computer. At the end of the day, the human brain is just far too complex to replicate, you know, and and that's, and that's something that I think we need to understand as we start talking about this is like, you know, aside from a really good clone, there's not a computer on the planet right now that really is going to mimic what happens within the the human brain because it's simply too, it's far too complex. Right. Another myth on here is that AI will replace humans in jobs that require computers. Ah, yes. That's a big false as well. I mean, I you used to hear this a lot when people would talk about robots replacing humans for jobs and stuff like that. It's a they took our jobs. <laughs> they took our jobs. And for a while, yeah, maybe there was a more efficient way to do the job, but there had to be somebody there to help program the robots and make sure the robots were running smoothly and maintain the robots. So there's just it's there's a give and take there. But as far as the idea that AI will replace humans in jobs, it's just not accurate. There may be a shift, but humans are complex and have the ability to problem solve in novel situations where AI doesn't have that ability right now. It's not even close to the level of nuance that you find in human processing, human problem solving, human invention in those moments. And so while AI might have faster computing power, right, maybe they can calculate numbers far more quickly than a human brain can, the human brain has a greater ability to intake data in real time and problem solve in ways that they're not programmed to be problem solved to do. Like, So a program can really only attend or complete tasks based on how it's programmed, where a human may have the ability to generalize their skills to work outside of what they know and problem solve situations in new settings that they haven't been programmed for. Do you think this is similar to what has gone on with the switch away from fossil fuels that a lot of people who worked in those industries simply moved, not simply, I don't want, I don't want to minimize this has been probably fairly drastic change, but switched from moving in energy processing that came from fossil fuels to energy processing that came from renewable resources. And they just had to learn a different system. And otherwise they were working in sort of the same line of work. So it was like, as one industry was starting to wane, a similar industry was starting to wax or increase. And that provided opportunity for like, yes, that those jobs may be lost over here, but they opened up over here. And actually, I think I heard something that like is either wind or solar energy was creating more jobs than like all of the fossil fuel industry put together or something like that. Yeah, that might be completely wrong. I I might be completely making that up, but I think I heard something like that. It sounds nice. (laughs) 
But I mean, does that is that seem like a reasonable comparison? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes sense because I mean, the thing is, is is there's always going to be some when we talk about innovation, you talk about advancements. There's always going to be something that is going to be a new or novel job, something that's going to be a new or novel task that human beings can learn and adapt to. I mean, I think about it like this: like there was one point in time, there's not really a demand for tasters, like royal tasters anymore. Right. right? Yeah, that's a really good point. And so that's just kind of what happens: like some jobs simply become obsolete. Whereas there are other jobs to kind of that are newer or novel that take its place. So humans are not in danger of losing their jobs to computers in general. <laughs> I was also thinking about like switchboard operators. That's another job that doesn't really need to exist anymore because computers handle all of the, the transactions of telephone lines and that sort of thing. And yeah. so many jobs have become automated and it just meant different and. Like, it's not like we all of a sudden had an explosion in unemployment because those were sectors that transitioned away from that. And there's a series of books I've been wanting to read with this idea of post-scarcity. And the idea is sort of being here that if we were to be able to have all of human needs met by machines, so if we had machines that did our medicine and our food and like basically handled the bulk of that, and probably our education as well would probably have to happen. But if we had machines handle the things that were like the most basic human needs where you you didn't have to pay for those things, then ultimately everyone would be unemployed. But you that wouldn't matter because the point of having a job is to be able to have shelter and food and stability in your life and like and to be able to survive and thrive. And instead, if you didn't have that, then you would have. What what would you do with your free time if you had everything you needed to survive and thrive and all you had was time? What would you do? Oh, that's hard to say. I, I would do all the things. I'd probably read a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think what would happen is that humans would turn to doing things that they love to do as hobbies and they would be just as productive, if not a thousand times more productive, doing stuff that they enjoy doing and not working over things that are required for survival and like right now we have to do that work i'm not proposing anything i'm saying that was the suggestion that i'm aware of that was put forth in these books about this idea of post scarcity but it is an interesting idea like it's a cool thought experiment to think about if ai could solve those problems for us what would we do instead and i honestly think we would do very well but that's that's me personally yeah i think so too i think humans would find a way all right, we have one more myth to tackle here, which is humans will find a way. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> AI will turn into Skynet and ultimately destroy human beings, which it doesn't have to be Skynet, just a version of a nefarious software that, that goes after humans. The answer here is false. So it's one of those things you never want to say never. But at this point in time, the way that the laws of robotics are designed and currently the power of AI, AI is a really powerful tool. It is a really complex tool as well. And it can do a lot of really good things, but it is nowhere near the level of power or advancement that would be required to orchestrate a military coup on human beings and ultimately wipe them out off the face of the earth. So we're not anywhere near that space. Like, not even close, not even by a millennia. Yeah, essentially, like, where AI is at right now, it's gotten really good at super highly specialized tasks for a lot of things. And it's we've been able to teach it things like, what if we program not how to play chess, but just given these rules, can you master chess? And we've seen AI be able to do that. Does that mean that we'll be able to win in a fight? No. <laughs> like it couldn't even begin to approach that. Try me. Yeah. AI is like, want to fight? <laughs> Come at me, bro. Yeah. Especially the chess one. Come on, nerd. <laughs> I love the idea of the AI taunting you. But yeah, like they, they become highly specialized in some of these situations where they can simulate a very precise scenario with very precise parameters to it, but they don't aggregate that information to anything beyond that one situation. It'd be like expecting you to spontaneously start learning new languages just by virtue of the fact of you live on a planet where there are more languages. Like it takes a lot of work and you could do it probably, but right now, like both of us have barely mastered English. So Yeah, we struggle with that. <laughs> As you can tell by the way that we sometimes make words with our mouth holes, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> me no good do sentence. Me no good talking like you and me. <laughs> and actually there's another one I was thinking of like how amazing how much time it would save if there was AI 
that could selectively go through a farm and pull weeds or even selectively attack bugs that were bad or insects or pests or whatever for crops. And the AI, like they're just not good enough for that. They could not look at a plant and tell whether it was supposed to be there or not and make that determination. But humans can, and we do so without any effort whatsoever. So like, that's just another example of like what an incredibly specific set of skills we would need that AI to have. And it just doesn't. And for humans, again, it's just no problem. So the vastness between where AI currently is and where humans are is an ocean that spans metaphorically the like galaxy that we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's important to recognize that as we go. It's not a, it's not a solution. It's not an end all be all. I mean, it is it is light years beyond what it was 20 years ago. Right. We recognize that the advancements are there, but it's still, it's still, again, it's very, it's highly specialized. A lot of AI is not generalized. Like, you know, human beings have a general skill set and, and AI just doesn't have it. I mean, and I think that's where a lot of, when we start talking about AI from the perspective of folks think that it's going to replace people or that it's going to replace, they're just trying to mimic the human brain. It's just not there. And as a matter of fact, that's a lot of what I want to talk about when we talk about the behavioral part of it, since we do go back to that behavioral bent. And and when we start talking about this, behavior in general requires a biological process. AI simply doesn't have that. And AI doesn't require behavior, but it often gets talked about in this term machine learning, or you hear it kind of often misquoted or mis misrepresented as a means to replicate human behavior, human thought, human thinking, human cognition. And it's just, it's one of those things where the reason we talk about behavior in this realm is because it does get compared or parallel a little bit within that space. That was a really good transition, by the way. I was like, it was so smooth. It was just, boom, we're right into our next topic. <laughs> I love it. Just expanding on what you were saying, because you're absolutely right. Like, I think that the learning component is loosely used here, again, since learning usually involves those biological processes that all other animals use to learn. And instead, we're seeing essentially reprogramming and design where it's rather than learn through experience, synthesize, generalize, create contextual rules, if you will, or at least reactions to specific cues, it's like the AI will run a billion simulations of an event really quickly and use that to extrapolate. And unfortunately, where do those simulations come from? You know, like who programmed that? So how accurate right. is it really to what the experience is in the real world? And even if the AI can go out and learn from the real world, it's just not set up in the same way as we are because we were forced by evolution to have to learn to survive. And that enabled our survival. We learned in such a way that we could learn quickly, generalize it quickly, interpret it immediately, make judgments about what to do with that information. And all of that had to be very flexible, very dynamic, and very fast. And AI is just not in the situation yeah. where it has to do those things. It can sort of take its time and it it also it doesn't have its survival at stake and so and survival doesn't mean anything to an ai and so the process is just going to look different right and speaking of the idea of survival like just the idea of reinforcers and punishers consequences for behavior those things that happen that make it so that the behavior continues there aren't any for machine learning so since the behavior would continue regardless right so think about this think about a robot in a factory Okay. And I think about like, what well, you know, I, I always go back because they would always show those images of like one of those robotic arms. It's like moving car parts and like fusing car parts, right? Like picking something up, moving it over to the assembly line, putting it on, wheel welding it and right. so on. Now, in the absence of any sort of consequence, in the absence of any sort of reinforcer, there's nothing that's saying like, good job, robot. Good job doing that. It's literally just an equation, right? Yeah. Like ABC, ABC, like back and forth. That would continue regardless of anything happening after the response occurs, right? The quote unquote response or quote unquote behavior. So what you find here and what you see a lot is that there's nothing that is rewarding that behavior. There's nothing that's rewarding the robot. As long as the robot was powered, that mechanism would continue to occur. Yeah, exactly. Calling it a mechanism, I think is very appropriate because if you think about sort of like something that actually is just sort of mechanical parts where you have like a lever working or something like, like a typewriter that like something that presses the button, the typewriter well, let's just say it's like that little happy bird that like dips and just goes back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Assuming that that would go on indefinitely, there is no motivation. There is no reward. There is no survival value. There is nothing at stake. It is simply a mechanical process whereby the actions of gravity have it work. That's it. Right. Yep. And so the things that we think of as robots and technology, because I think there are a lot of people who are sort of afraid of technology and they're, they might call themselves Luddites or be referred to that way 
or people who are sort of phobic of upcoming technology. And I think there's certainly reason to be afraid of what certain technology is capable of. But we use technology all the time. A belt is a piece of technology. Mm -hmm. A fan that cools you down is a piece of technology. A microscope that simply uses lenses, like not even electric microscope, just like a, a telescope is a piece of technology. Virtually everything that we do that is not a direct interaction with nature itself, and even many of the ways we interact with nature, is technology. Our language is a form of a technology, right? And so at any point, if you feel yourself like afraid of technology, you're essentially just saying, this is the period of time I'm going to take a snapshot of and say, this is the one that's the best of technology because it only goes up to a certain point. And I don't know that that's a particularly useful position to take for a lot of things. And while I think that we should be somewhat skeptical of the future and also just be always monitoring what's going on, just acknowledging that like everything that we do that is not bent on nature is technology and therefore like everything that we continue to do will be a form of technology, if that makes sense. Yep, absolutely. I think that makes perfect sense. Cool. So I think we can go over some take homes. I don't have really a whole lot because again, we want to dig deeper into somebody who works like, you know, we want to work with somebody and talk to somebody who does this for a living and can provide like kind of a, a more experts approach to this. But we wanted to kind of prime everybody and talk about this because it is something that is commonly, I hear people afraid of it. They're afraid of this idea of like this intelligence, this programming that kind of runs awry. It doesn't ever really run awry, but there you always hear about like kind of like misconceptions around this. And we wanted to start that conversation so that we could really, you know, maybe provide a little bit of solace and Everybody is aware that maybe the robot overlords won't take over in 2020, but you never know because this year has been crazy. So we will come back to this topic. It won't necessarily be exactly like a, we're breaking this into a two-parter type of thing, but we are coming back to AI and we will be bringing on an expert to talk more about this and that, that is coming. So look forward to that. So the primary point that I want to make with all this is that you know, we aren't in danger of killer robots, nor are we in danger of losing our jobs. And so that is something that kind of, I cannot express enough. We are not in a space right now where AI is going to destroy humanity. We're not in a place where AI is going to be something that is causing unemployment rates. Like what we're finding is that AI is a super helpful tool to make some of our jobs and some of our lives a little bit easier so that when we are kind of going through our lives, we can allocate that time and that resource that we might spend doing this task on something more beneficial or something new or something novel in our environments. I think a good take home point or one that I like as well is that AI is essentially a specialized algorithm that is designed to, I guess, sort of construct itself from the experience that it has in both simulations as well as actual experience, but in a very specialized way. And I heard someone describing on another podcast that they really don't think that AI will ever reach the point of being human. And talking about what has happened with the Turing test is a lot of people have sort of said, what's the point in making a robot appear to be human? Like there is, there's not really going to be motivation to do that for almost anything. Because even in the capacities that we want the AI to be human, it's again, probably going to be pretty specialized. If we want an AI to be human in terms of customer service, well, then it's going to be pretty good at mimicking a human for those particular queries, but not all other things. Like it just doesn't have the same, like AI is not going to go out and like pick up a hobby of like learning to throw darts. Well, <laughs> you know, it's just not going to go do those things because there's, there's no point ever in, in constructing that. And so I agree with this person. I think that they were expressing a level of critical thinking about this just in terms of really why would anyone put forward the time and money and effort to create something to imitate humans just for the sake of imitating humans? The point is to create machines that are better and better at serving the things that we want machines to do for us as humans. And that doesn't mean looking, sounding, or acting like humans. That simply means taking over processes that we don't want to do. I agree. I mean, it's not designed to be something that is going to replace humanity. I mean, it's that simple. And we're just not even there. Like the technology is not even close to being there. Yes. So I think my personal landing on this is I am in favor of the responsible use of AI and its continued development. And I think that ultimately it will have positive consequences for the human race. 
And that's pretty much my take home too, is, you know, when we're talking about a field of science and the goal of science is to benefit humanity. And so if we kind of approach and we kind of look at this from that lens, that critical lens of, is there a benefit? Is this going to help us? Then I think we'll be okay. I think as long as people keep that in mind and not create robots for the sake of creating very realistic robots that hide in plain sight and want us dead. I will say I'm in favor of the restricting facial recognition software because it seems to have too many problems right now. So yeah, anything that violates human privacy is not something I'm in favor of. Like if I had a robot that did all my dishes for me, I would be absolutely ecstatic. The price tag that I would be willing to pay for a robot that did my dishes is just absurdly high. <laughs> yeah. One day that's we're we're on our way. We're on our way. Yeah. So Anyway, that's all right with that. Yeah. So let's do a piece of listener mail. Okay. So this one comes from Jessica and she's writing in regarding our board game episode. She said, I thoroughly enjoyed listening to all of your thoughts and suggestions on your recent episode about board games. If you haven't heard of it, I think you would enjoy looking at Gloomhaven. It's one of my favorite co-op games, which involves a lot of strategy. I think of it like a tabletop RPG that has been converted into a legacy board game, which as a reminder, or for those who didn't listen to that episode, a legacy game is one that's essentially intended to play through a long campaign once, and it alters the game in such a way that you either reveal too much information or you change too much about the game to play it more than once or twice. And so the the point is that you get through the campaign and then you're sort of done with it. Anyway, that was her mail. So first... Again, thank you so much for writing in, Jessica. I have heard of Gloomhaven. This has been on my list. I have many friends who have this game, and it's one that I really am looking forward to playing. Its price tag is a little high, often retailing at over $200, although I've seen the price come down to about $130, which is still fairly steep for a game. And I definitely want to check it out. It, It looks like an amazing game. There's been a bunch of expansions for it, so I'm sure that that helps increase the replayability of the whole thing, but I do appreciate the suggestion. And I, I'm also happy to share that with other people who I think if you're interested in checking out a giant, and I mean, physically giant, the box is huge, but uh, also like a large structure campaign <laughs> co-op board game. Gloomhaven uh, is certainly a good recommend from Jessica. I like it. I'll check it out. I mean, it's expensive. I need to get into the, the other games you told me first though. Yeah. Yeah. We'll orient you to things that are, up your alley and then once you feel like you're starting to pick up the habit then then you can start spending your mortgage on games yeah there you go (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's do some recommendations yay recommendations so my recommendation this week is a book i am a big Black Flag fan. I'm really interested in pretty much anything that Henry Rollins does, but the story of the band Black Flag is always really kind of wild and bizarre because there have been so many people in the band. They have had six, I think, five or six, five different lead singers. Wow. Yeah, Henry Rollins being the most famous. But the other one that's widely regarded as one of their best and some of their really good stuff is the singer Keith Morris. And he went on to be in some other bands, but he wrote pretty much his tell-all for a period of time called My Damage, and he talks about all the bands that he was in. Right now, he's in a band called Off, which is a really great kind of hardcore band. If you're familiar with the Circle Jerks, he was the singer for the Circle Jerks as well. Group Sex is one of the best punk records ever written, so if you get a chance to check that out. But anyway, he wrote a book. It's kind of a tell-all. It's really interesting because it's very honest. I feel like Henry Rollins writes in a way that's very like introspective and very honest and authentic. And this feels authentic, but it's not as well-written. But it's really interesting because the first like 110 pages are just like party, 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 Coke, 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 beer, beer, beer. And then he's like, oh, I got to get sober. And then the rest of the story is kind of about him getting sober, dealing with diabetes on tour. And whoa, yeah, it's really it's, it turns into a really interesting story and it's a really easy read. So My Damage by Keith Morris. Man, the history of punk counterculture is so interesting. Oh, yeah. Just fraught with some craziness that has happened. So. It's bizarre. Like, I mean, just everything. Like, if you read Please Kill Me, there's a Straight Edge book that's like the oral history of Straight Edge. It's really interesting. There's a lot of stuff out there that's like the history of punk and just the individual history of bands is far more interesting than I think people realize. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating stuff. Yeah. All right. My recommendation is a game available on at least, I know it's available on iOS and I think it's available on Android and I believe it's also a Nintendo game that you can get. And it's called Scribble Knots. 
mm-hmm. and knots, N-A-U-T-S, knots, like a astronaut. So it's a fun little video game. Essentially what happens is you're, you're given some kind of challenge and then you can type or write in the name of an object to complete that challenge. And for depending on the version of the game, you can add adjectives like big, small, red, yellow, whatever. And the point is to try and complete that puzzle by just thinking of any tool that you could use to complete that puzzle, knowing that you can essentially only use one or two tools at a time at most. And so you are you arm your little character avatar with the things that you build or or you just create something that exists in the environment that you can use. And it's it's really fascinating game that there's so many different ways that you can complete a challenge. And sometimes the challenges are like do this in five different ways or like do this without using X, Y and Z, you know? Yeah, I actually really like this for kids to work on sort of problem solving stuff. It can get fairly complex and they have to have a fairly good command of their language to think of what kind of things they could use, but kind of a fun exercise to do. Yeah. I think one of my favorite things is that at some point in time, you just get to a point where you explore and you just put it in words to see if it exists in there. Yeah. You know, one of my favorites was I summoned Cthulhu and he destroyed one of the levels that we were playing. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. The vocabulary of that game is very large, much larger than you might think. It's insane. Yeah. It's a fun one. So yeah. All right, cool. Do you have anything else on AI? Not today. No, I think that covers it. Perfect. All right. Well, then we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for recording with me today, Shane. And I also want to say thanks for your notes on this. Shane was largely responsible for getting the development of the notes on this topic. And if you are an AI and you'd like to talk to us, then do so kindly and let us know that you're AI. (laughs) But if you're a human who has thoughts on AI, then we definitely love to hear from you. If you play Scribble Knots or are a punk, we definitely want to hear about that as well. And if there's anything in here that resonated with you, whether you agree or disagree, we're happy to hear it. Especially if you would like to have a conversation, we'd prefer you do that than leave us a poor rating. Yeah. <laughs> because you maybe disagreed with us. I think that's more useful for both of us. But anyway, you can reach us on all the social media platforms at Podcast. Our email is also info at that, which is where you'll contact me, Shane and Amber Handle, or other social media things. But we'd be happy to hear from you. So this is Abraham. And this is Shane. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.